This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host, Patty Daly. Well, all right. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who's taking a few days off. Good for him. Um, so I'll be in with you uh, today and uh, again on Monday. And then we're going to split our time between myself and uh, Tim Powers for a portion of next week while uh, Patty enjoys some R&R. Well, a major government announcement was made yesterday. They uh, Rumors have been swirling for years about what was going to happen with the old Costco building. And we would regularly in the newsroom get people, uh, you know, calling us and saying, uh, we're hearing it's going to be this, we're hearing it's going to be that. But for quite some time now, uh, it's been suggested that it was going to serve some kind of a health care role. And despite our best efforts in trying to get more information on that, officials simply weren't talking. Well, yesterday, the Department of Health issued a release announcing that NL Health Services had awarded a $42 million 20-year contract to NL Health Alliance for the lease of the old Costco building for what they're calling an ambulatory care hub. Uh, The way they put it, actually, is that it's a $4.1 million contract annually for a 20-year lease. So that that equates to about $42 million. Well, what does that mean? According to the Department of Health, it will involve health care services that do not require overnight hospitalization. That would include things like physiotherapy, medical and surgery clinics, general x-rays and ultrasounds. The idea is that it will help to divert traffic away from the hospitals, which will then be able to better concentrate on on things like emergency care and ERs and uh, surgery, cardiology, those kinds of things. Well, it sounds good on the surface, but it raises more questions than it answers. And our understanding is that officials uh, will likely provide more detailed information later today. But some of the immediate questions that come to mind are uh, $40 million for this lease, uh, $42 million for this lease. What about the expense of staffing, equipment, etc.? Is that in addition to that? What kind of timelines are we looking at in having this up and running? How will people be triaged? How will they be able to know that, okay, I'm facing this problem. Am I going to uh, St. Clair's or the Health Sciences Center or am I going to Costco? <laughs> uh, for want of a better word, you know what I'm trying to say. Um, how, uh, who will know who goes to the ambulatory clinic versus the hospital? Not to mention um, its location. It's out in the east end of St. John's. It's not easy to get to even if you live in St. John's. Not exactly uh, a convenient location for a lot of people. St. Clair's and the health sciences are kind of centrally located, if you know what I mean. Um, Then comes staffing. And we all know the problems that Newfoundland and Labrador has faced in the recruitment and retention of healthcare staff. And by the way, we're not alone. They're the same challenges being faced right across the country. So there's competition. So will this type of facility work? Given staffing that we have now, how many people are going to have to be hired on? Uh, what type of professions are going to be needed in these kinds of... Uh, so, it, as again, it raises a heck of a lot more questions 
then it answers. And we're hoping to get some answers on that uh, for you throughout the course of the day. VOCM News is watching that very closely. Of course, the breaking news this morning uh, in uh, St. John's, RNC now uh, investigating a bomb threat that has halted operations at St. John's International Airport. The airport authority says the threat came in this morning. Public being asked to stay away from the terminal building for the time being. Uh, What happens with bomb threats uh, is that um, specialized RNC members uh, arrive on the scene, do an assessment, uh, determine whether or not it's a a credible threat, and then take uh, the appropriate action, if you will. So they're asking, while that's underway, they're asking people to stay away from the terminal building. I had a look at the St. John's International uh, Authority website just a short while ago, and uh, it wasn't showing any uh, cancellations or delays in flights. It might not have been updated, but there are currently no um, operations uh, happening at the airport right now for obvious reasons. So um, that will all be updated in due time. Um, So we'll keep you appraised of that as well. Well, uh, very sad to hear yesterday of the passing of the former federal NDP leader, Ed Broadbent, myself and Brian Medor having a chat about that in the newsroom this morning. Ed Broadbent, perhaps... You know, aside from um, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, was uh, one of the first politicians on my radar as a a young person. Um, And he had um, a very different approach to um, party leadership and, um, uh, you know, uh, coming across, if you if you will. Um, you, when you think of politicians, you think of, you know, the usual kind of um, uh, slick attempts, I guess, at um, sleight of hand or whatever the case may be, or, uh, you know, there, there's always those impressions that people have of politicians, uh, regardless of their motivation. But uh, Ed Broadbent certainly came across as uh, genuine and uh, straight up. And that translated into uh, a great deal of personal popularity for him. And he helped to build the New Democratic Party in Canada from uh, a party that was, um, you know, kind of there but not really noticed to, you know, a real contender. And there were expectations in the 1980s that he could possibly form a government on his own. Um, But it never happened. His personal popularity was uh, very high. He continually polled as the most popular party leader in Canada for, uh, you know, a succession of uh, political polls, but um, never got that um, anticipated uh, NDP general election win. Uh, despite, you know, building up the party. And we all remember Jack Layton and the Big Orange Crush. Well, uh, Ed Broadbent really was the forerunner to all of that. And uh, a yeah, very smart man, uh, intellectual, but was able to um, uh, express himself in down-to-earth ways that resonated with people, resonated with people in a big way. Just his 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 honesty and his integrity came across consistently.
Um, so very sad to hear that. To 87 years old, if you have any thoughts or um, uh, tributes to make to the late Ed Broadbent, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. We were talking earlier about recruitment and retention of healthcare staff. That's not the only area that's been having trouble with recruitment and retention. The other being the hospitality sector. And of course, we heard yesterday from uh, Restaurants Canada, we heard from the St. John's Board of Trade and others who are uh, asking the federal government to extend the deadline for repayment of the SIBA loans. Those were the loans that came out uh, following the pandemic to help certain businesses and certain sectors really struggling as a result of the pandemic and pandemic restrictions. And it was a very serious time, as we all recall. It's quite a while ago now. But um, we all recall, you know, that because this was a new uh, virus and, and it was uh, killing people uh, at the in the early days uh, at a, an alarming rate. Um, so a lot of um, restrictions were put in place and that had a very serious dampening effect on businesses, particularly in the hospitality uh, sector. So um, recruitment and retention never really, you know, came back to pre-pandemic levels in that particular sector. Um, and uh, it continues to be an issue. Um, if you have any thoughts on extension of uh, repayment of the SIBA loans or recruitment and retention either in healthcare or the hospitality industry or anywhere else where that's struggling right now, you're certainly welcome to give, it, give us a call. Well, uh, before I go on any further, we do have calls um, lined up. So I'm going to start the show right away with uh, Jessie Wilkins. She's with the Shea Heights Community Board and she is on line one. Hello, Jesse. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay, Linda. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Jesse. Um, so tell us what's on the go. Well, um, I've spoken with Patty before. I've been chair of the Shahis Community Board now for a couple of years. And um, we're a little bit unique in that uh, we're under the umbrella of the city of St. John's, uh, working out of the Shahis Community Center here. On Shea Heights, and we've got a fantastic relationship with the city. It's been going really, really well. Uh, we're sort of you know, there's they oversee our our you know our terms of reference and you know this sort of thing. But we're very unique in the fact that you know we're a board uh, different than the rest of the community centers in in the city of St. John's, which most of them are run by Newfoundland Labrador Housing. So we've been very successful. I mean, in the last couple of years, we've had some great fundraisers. We've done the Walsh's Memorial. We've done our Folk Fest. We've, you know, it's been fantastic. And the city has worked in cooperation with us. And um, as of Wednesday, I got a phone call from Lisa Bishop, who is the uh, that works at the uh, Memorial University uh, School of Pharmacy. They were looking at applying for a federal grant, uh, which is about one hundred and thirty thousand dollars, to educate youth and also people who interact with youth in our community on drugs and dr uh, drug prevention and abuse, which in my opinion was a fantastic opportunity for our community. Uh, and I, of course, you know, as chair of the board, I was all over. Uh, the problem with uh, the School of Pharmacy was is that they had completed this full application and I were ready to roll with it and found out that it had to be a nonprofit. So therefore, Lisa Bishop, who's on our community board, uh, approached me and said, look, maybe, you know, the community board could put this in and we could partner. So, of course, we don't have a nonprofit as a community board. We're under the city of St. John's umbrella. They do. So the city of St. John's in the past has, in cooperation with our board, signed off on 
grants. We got one last year to develop Beaver Pond Park and put in together to successfully apply and get these grants. So immediately, I approached the City of St. John's and we met on Wednesday. And the idea was that the City of St. John's, the School of Pharmacy, and the Shea Community Board would submit this application for this huge opportunity. Now, it was a pilot project for this year with about $130,000. If it was successful, phase two was three-quarters of a million dollars where we could roll this out to all the community centers in St. John's to reach out to, to kids and reach out to people that deal with children and teens about drugs and the dangers and abuse problems and substance abuse. So it was a huge opportunity not only for our community, but for the city of St. John's. Thursday, yesterday, I got a notification from the city of St. John's that due to time constraints, they were not willing to sign off and forward this application. Last right, because the time. city was, was we, we saw that big uh, news conference uh, back in the fall um, indicating that uh, the city was um, going to be getting this big influx of federal money to address these kinds of issues, uh, drug, drug abuse, drug prevention, those kinds of things, especially as it relates right. to younger people. So, uh, so what's the problem here? What, well, that's what I'm struggling with, Linda. I mean, as of 9.30, 10 o'clock last night, I was on the phone with Ron Ellsworth and Carl Ridgely, and, you know, they've, both of them have been working did, you know, diligently on this strategy to get this move forward. But it, as it's 98% done. This is a 40-page document that the School of Pharmacy of Mon has prepared. The application is completed. All it's required is a sign-off. And I wouldn't mind, but this, it, we haven't got the money yet. This is just the application. So it would be different if the city was saying, okay, we're going to sign on on this today and we're going to receive this money and and they're struggling with, you know, who's going to administer it. The School of Pharmacy has already said that they will administer the the funds, they will do the hiring, they will do the administration of the entire project. All the city has to do is sign off on this document and submit it. We we may not even get it. It may go somewhere else. But I, I want to be in the race. So I don't know, again, like I phoned Patty before with issues that I had nowhere to go. So again... This is where I'm at. Yeah, because the city issued a, a release just yesterday um, inviting uh, applications. So if there's no time, you have an application ready, set to go. Well, all the work is done. And, you know, there's a huge amount of research that's gone into this post uh, Mon School of Pharmacy. They've been at this for over two years collecting this data. And this is a huge opportunity. And just imagine if we manage to get through phase one and it's successful and go to phase two, where we can roll this out to the entire city. I mean, I just hate to see it lost. And and backed up with, you know, the gravitas, I suppose, or the expertise of the uh, Munn School of Pharmacy. And they're going to administer the whole thing. All the city has to do is basically sign off on saying that they're, they're going to be the nonprofit that's involved. And then, you know, as I said to, to Ron Ellsworth and Carl, we can sign off on this now and submit it and work on an agreement between now and the time if it's approved. And if it doesn't work out, then they can say no and turn it down. I mean, but at this point, not to be even in the race, uh, you know, uh, I've, called, I've called, also called Seamus O'Regan's office and said maybe they can do something with an extension for the grant application. I've called message the mayor. I'm waiting to hear back from him. Um, really, it's 98% done. I mean, what's left other than the sign-off, right? So what does that suggest to you? 
It's just, it's just suggests to me that we're caught up in the bureaucracy and, you know, because of the city of St. John's being as big as it is and, you know, dealing with staff and dealing with issues that it's this one of these things that you know, it's easier sometimes to say no than it is to, I mean, maybe we got to get somebody to, to work over the weekend for the city. I mean, if this, if this works and helps one team, uh, I've, I've seen Vancouver, I've seen East Hastings, I've seen what these drugs can do. Like, We've seen it here. Yep, it's coming. It's coming. It's here. So we I mean, early intervention is the answer. So I mean, I don't know. Hopefully, the mayor is listening. Well, let's try and get the mayor, uh, or Ron Ellsworth, or Carl Ridgely, or any representative of uh, St. John City Council, on to explain what the holdup is here. Yeah, and I, I can understand if, if they had to write the whole application, you know, uh, from the start, obviously, a 40-page document that, you know. But all, all we're requiring is a partnership here. And we've had a fantastic partnership in the past. I mean, you know, I can't express enough the help that we've gotten from the city staff at the Shades Community Center, Vanessa and uh, uh, Jennifer. And, you know, they've been just great. But why this wall, you know, was such a great opportunity. Jesse, I'm so glad you brought this to our attention. We'll try and get somebody from uh, St. John City Council on to uh, explain this process and, um, you know, what what the holdup is on what sounds like a worthwhile project. Thanks, Linda. You Thank know, you. I've used Patty before, with, um, I had nowhere to go. Hopefully it's success, successful this time. Appreciate it, Jesse. Thank you. Thanks for the time. All righty. Bye-bye. Well, your thoughts on that? We're going to try and get uh, someone from St. John City Council on to explain that uh, when we come back after the break. This is VOCM Open Line. And we're back on VOCM Open Line. We're going to go now to Daryl. You're on the air. Hello, Daryl. Oh, hello, Linda. How are you today? I'm good, Daryl. How are you? Oh, I'm doing good. Thank you uh, very much. You got a good, lively show on the go. Good start. Indeed. Yeah, what I'm calling about is the the job loss is going to be out of Gander here. Uh, I think it's going to be 10 uh, uh, full-time jobs, uh, dispatch jobs, are going to be relocated to St. John's uh, pertaining to the air ambulance service. And uh, I had to call in and to address this because if you're on the Northeast Avalon, you don't really need the air ambulance service because the facilities is alongside. But the air ambulance service is for any other part of the province that's going to have to go to the health science or St. Clair's or whatever the case may be. So to relocate to St. John's, and I see up in Labrador they're going to have a facility in uh, Deuce Bay, and I'm not sure about Deer Lake as well. But uh, this just don't make uh, total sense. This dispatch in Gander been here for years and years. Then all of a sudden you got to uproot and and move it to St. John's. Uh, it, it just don't make uh, it don't make no sense whatsoever. And when you come to dispatching, whatever the case may be. You can do that anywhere now with modern technology, so why do you got to uproot the jobs and move it, uh, even based on technology alone? And I also stand to be corrected on this. Uh, I could be wrong, but I think, was this recommended through the health court, to, uh, one of these uh, recommendations? I stand to be corrected on that one. For the consolidation of um, um, ambulance services, yes, I think it was. Yeah. It was mentioned in the budget anyway. <clears throat> Yeah, I was mentioning in the budget. Okay, so under the health accord, so uh, again, uh, must came from uh, recommendation from healthcare providers, obviously. Uh, and I'm going to revert back to the obstetrics here in Gander. The same thing as under the health accord. And to me, under the health accord, it was based on input, 
more so than what should be. Like the obstetrics in Ghana was a good example. Uh, <clears throat> there was a recommended for uh, the elimination of obstetrics in Gander and just being um, Grand Falls, Windsor, totally, but which I'm glad is in both facilities because you need that essential service. And that was based on input because I sat on the health court myself and all it was was based on input, the exorbitant information, and then recommended it. So the input is not always a good thing based on scientific studies or what should actually be. So that was just a good example. So if this was under the health accord again, uh, <clears throat> I challenge Minister Osborne or Dr. Parfait or Elizabeth Davis, come on your show to on your show to address this. Why did it come to this recommendation? Because it don't make no sense. Because Gander is centrally uh, located. So if anyone needs their ambulance, it's going to be the other parts of the power province versus the northeast Avalon when, when you look at it. So they should take this into consideration. And now I know the town of Gander is having meetings and challenging this issue, and rightfully so, because <clears throat> it don't make sense. Because if you got near ambulance based in St. John's, that's going to have these St. John's go to other part of the province and back to St. John's again, versus if you had a base in Gander, or wherever the case may be, then just leave and go to the facility and and you do your job that way. So it don't make sense. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, you, that's <clears throat> the, precisely the point that the town of Gander has been making. Uh, Daryl, we have uh, uh, Eugene Nippert in the line also wanting to talk about the air ambulance situation. I, I'm glad you raised it. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, and uh, I'm not sure Eugene's going to raise it because uh, uh, there's uh, uh, Eva Sear got a couple of air ambulances here in Gander now, which could be utilized as well from what I gather. So there's a whole number of options uh, there. But uh, I'll just sum it up. Like, uh, they're going to have to go back to the drawing board, and I challenged Minister Osborne or Dr. Parfait or Elizabeth Davis, uh, Sister Elizabeth Davis, come on your show and address to the people what's the reasoning for this and, and explain it thoroughly. All right. I appreciate your call this morning, Daryl. Thank you very much. All right. Yeah, thank you, Linda, and all the best to you and VOCM and your listening audience, and have a great day. Same to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, we're going to go now to Eugene. Hello, Eugene. Good morning, Linda. How are you this morning? And happy New Year to you. Same to you. I thank you to you and David and the OCM for giving me the opportunity to get on and voice my concern for the people of the province. Uh, yeah, I'm chair of the Here Ambulance Medical Transport FC Group and uh, been since 2018. Uh, got started back then because of issues I was well, on Fogo Island and the issues with the ferry being used at night and not the air ambulance, which was a big concern. Uh, we had concerns out of uh, Marystown that the air ambulance wasn't used enough, uh, Marystown Winterland, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, no coverage after 10 p.m. in Goose Bay. And uh, that was, you know, three of the issues, uh, but we had more issues. And another, a big, the big concern for us was all concerns, Linda, but we have big concerns that the air ambulances wasn't close to the patient. And air ambulances was crisscrossing the province, costing the province millions of dollars and not close to the patient. So what we, we fought for and still fighting for was to add the air ambulance centralized. And that, well, that would be Gander, right? And we had the GIS, the, the dispatch there already, and been there for years, like your previous uh, caller just said. 
so anyway, we had many meetings, and I got made in front of me here now, and he, uh, you know, on my desk here at meetings like on January the 15th, 2021. He's the director of emergency and paramedic services and Department of Health, uh, Minister of Transport, Minister Hagee, even at our meetings. Uh, I, I got to get this one out quick. Minister Hagee used to say to me, and I'm not degrading anyone. Minister Hagee is a good person, of course. He used to say to me, Mr. Nifford, why are you trying to push this on us when I am, the MHA for Gannery was at the time, the minister, doctor, and a pilot? And I know that the closest that you can get the air ambulance to the patient is where it should be. And we were going to centralize the air ambulance system in Gander with medical personnel. And I also got notes here where the premier agreed this is going to get done. He's also a doctor, of course, and knows the importance. So now, now uh, the, 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 the medity is going to push this down our throat what if they was going to push down the truck by the end of January, but we got that prolonged now until the 1st of April. And they're going to put everything on the Avalon besides the air ambulance uh, in Goose Bay. Uh, so we got major problems with that. So what I'm going to do, and, I, and I've been, you know, going to try to bring my group back together and try to fight this because I know they're saying that they're doing what the Elder Court recommended, Linda, like you mentioned there in the, with the last car. I was on the Elder Court. Privatization was mentioned, yes, no problem there. But they did say they were going to centralize the air ambulance system. They were going to centralize the ambulance system. Well, centralized means central Newfoundland, which is I voted for, of course, like being in central Newfoundland. So we we got to fight back. Like I, I agree with what the mayor of Gander is saying, one hundred percent. He was on the, the group with me, of course, and he, I had many meetings at his boardroom. We got to fight back. We like just an example right now. And I followed the Aramises religiously in my system there. And emergency just recently in Deer Lake, and an air ambulance had to fly from Gander because we got two in the system from Gander. Two grand, uh, two St. John's. I'm sorry. Pick up medical personnel to attend emergency in Derlick. Get with the darn program. We got to smarten up here. We can't have four air ambulances based in St. John's, where 75% of the population is living and don't need it. And I heard Minister Osborne understand. Well, it's because that's where the population, majority of the population, live. Well, yes, I agree with that. But they don't. There's only the air ambulance for the Avalon is used about 5% of the time, which would be the Janeway or transplants, like kidney transplants or whatever. So 95% of the time, they're, they're not being used for the Avalon. So why not have it centralized so it'll be closer to the patient, save lives? And I just had an example, and I know prolonged it. A friend of mine, Don Dialysis was in Gander from Fogo Island. He ended up in emergency, had to get rushed to St. John's, had to get, a, and there was an air ambulance in, in, in Gander, but had to get air ambulance come out of St. John's because that's where the medical personnel was, not in Gander. And that person could have been dead. Thank God he's not. But, I mean, 
you know, it's a matter of life or death. So where is it all adding up? Like, I, I, I don't know, but this group, I, mean, I met with the councillor of, of, of Lewis for there this morning, and then we got to get our group together. And we had coverage on that group right from Bjorn right to Grand Falls, Windsor. And they, and I got the list in front of me of all these people, and I'm going to bring these people together and fight this issue. Because if the Premier agreed it should happen, if the Minister of Health agreed at the time that it should happen, then why didn't it happen? So we get a group from the states, now this costs us some $600,000, I understand, to drive this down our throat, and central and rural Newfoundland are going to suffer for it. So how is this adding up, Linda? You're raising some good questions, uh, Eugene. We'll see if anybody out there uh, wants to uh, chime in on that particular issue. Really appreciate your call this morning. Yes, Linda, and my, uh, you know my name, and my number is 709-486-7373. Call me, boys. I tell you, we got to come together, and we got to fight this issue. And thank you for your time, Linda. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Mo. All Bye. right. Bye-bye. And uh, when we come back, we hope to hear from you. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And we're back. Uh, Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off for the next few days. Uh, Adam is on the air. Hello, Adam. Hi. Hi, how are you? Uh, could be better, I guess. Oh, dear. What's wrong? Uh, well... I had my electricity cut off on December 17th. Right. And uh, I I recently just found one of my best friends frozen to death in my house. What? Yes. uh, uh, Well, Hydro cut off my electricity and... uh, it, it is really cold here in Labrador, I guess. But they cut off my electricity, and uh, uh, last night I went home to find out, well, to find my good buddy passed away because I'm not sure. I think he, well, not think, he, he was froze to death in my house. Oh my goodness! Uh, when was um, when was the power cut? Uh, December seventeenth, just before Christmas. Oh my! And you haven't been able to get it re-established? I, I've been trying to. I paid my bill and everything, and then after that, uh, Hydro said that I needed a permit to get my uh, meter box changed and everything, and. I've been trying to do it, and I could not find anybody to in Goose Bay to do it. And, and, you, and your friend was staying with you on a permanent basis, or just in for a visit? What 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 was the situation I there? Just, I, I let him stay there to watch over my house, but he froze to death. And you weren't there. Uh, no, I was not there. I, I, I didn't even expect him to freeze to death or anything, but, yeah, I found him last night about 9.30, and he was frozen stiff. Oh, dear goodness. Um, uh, so um, was he aware of the power situation in your home? Yes, he was. Was but... he adequately, um, you know, covered or...? 
Yeah, yeah, well, I had everything there to cover him and everything, but, yeah, I'm guessing it was too cold. And he chose to stay there even though there was no power? Yeah, he he had nowhere else to live because he was homeless. Oh, I see. So um, kind of a... Uh... Yeah, uh, so uh, better to have a roof over your head and and be in the cold than to be out in the elements in the cold, hey? Yes. Um, so are, are in RCMP involved now? Uh, yes, they, they removed his body last night and everything, and, uh, well, I, I don't know what else to say about it, but, yeah, they they removed his body. Oh, my goodness. Adam, I'm so sorry to hear this. Um, are you okay? Uh, yeah, I'm all right, I guess. So what are you going to do now? What? What are you going to do now if you have no power? Well, I, I don't know what to do. I've been trying to find uh, electricians all through Happy Valley. And to be able to change my meter box. That's what uh, Hydro was saying. I needed a permit pulled, and I I needed to get my meter box changed because it was, they said it was uh, uh, run down looking and everything just because it was uh, a little bit old looking. So, Adam, uh, do you own the home? Are you renting? Uh, Is it under Uh, Newfoundland Labrador housing? Yeah, I own the home. Okay. And are you able to get any assistance? Are there any programs out there? I've been trying to... I'm able to pay for for anybody that would be able to do it. Uh, Everything would be covered, but uh, as of now... uh, Seems like nobody around this around this place will friggin' come and do it or anything. They've been trying to tell me like, uh, oh, they're too busy and everything. Okay, yeah, because I I believe when it comes to the outside meter, that has to be Newfoundland power, if I understand correctly. I'm not 100% uh, they- sure on that, but I believe that to be the case. They said it was my my own problem. Everything they said uh, that's attached to my house is is my problem. Okay. And uh, but I understand I, that I, Newfoundland Power is the one that has to do the work. I, I stand to be corrected on that. Yeah, yeah. I tried a whole bunch of places everywhere around town. Said said that. Uh, well, it, it's my own problem, I guess. Even Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro, they they said that my meter box is my own concern, and and well, everybody in this whole town said that. Uh, well, it's my own problem. Have you been uh, in contact with your MHA, Perry Trimper, to see? I, I spoke with Perry Trimper and everything, but uh, 
like he like he said uh there's nothing he could do he he tried to help me out even before christmas and everything and i just i don't know uh they said it's my problem so in, uh so you can't you you just can't find the person to do the work for you is that what you're saying Yes, exactly. I, I tried everywhere in Happy Valley, Goose Bay, and everybody, they don't even want to return my phone calls. Adam, I'm so sorry to hear that this has happened uh, in your life and, and, and your friend. Um, um, you've put the request out there. We'll see if anybody responds to it. Uh, I wish you all the best, Adam. Yes. And let us know if uh, if you get any success with that. Yes, but it's horrible that somebody had to die in my house. Just it it's just totally horrible. It is. It is. And our deepest condolences to you. I know you're hurting. Yes, I know. Thank you. All right. All all the best to you, Adam. Let us know how you make out. Okay, I'll call back when I do find out anything. All right, thank you. Take care of yourself. You too. Okay, bye-bye. Oh, my goodness, what a state. Um, Anybody with thoughts on that, they're certainly welcome to give us a call. We're going to go now to Daryl Harding. He's the independent progressive conservative candidate for the uh, District of Conception Bay, East Bell Island. Hello, Daryl. Good morning, Linda. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm excited, and uh, this is my first opportunity to speak to the uh, the district and to the province en masse, so I thank you for taking my call. Well, welcome to the show. So what prompted you to run, uh, not for the progressive conservatives, but as an in- independent progressive conservative? Uh, well, initially, uh, I had announced to the people in my town that I wasn't going to run. I had uh, been recently elected and recently i mean within the last term as a uh, as a councillor a second term councillor for portugal cove st philips um and i wanted to uh, i had signed on for a four year term and i had planned to uh, commit a four year term um and work uh, and do the best i could for my town also i didn't want to encumber the town uh, with a with a by-election process and the cost incurred with that to fill my seat, if you would. Uh, the taxpayers in our town in particular um, have a legitimate uh, concern with uh, taxation, and I didn't want to put a, another cost on top of them. So you changed your mind, though. That. What happened there? I did. After that, I posted, well, I posted that on social media, and after that, uh, I got a lot of calls and messages, a couple of visits to my house, saying, Daryl, you can, you can actually serve your town uh, probably even better as an MHA. You can also do the same good for Belle Island and, and Paradise uh, at the same time. So I thought about it, and, and, uh, and I said, yeah, well, I'm, I'll be laid out of the out of the race, laid into the race too, uh, because everybody else had announced. But I figured the logic made sense, uh, so I would do that. And I recently also contacted my town CAO, and I um, have offered to reimburse any cost if I'm lucky enough and, and the people trust me enough to elect me 
I will reimburse the election costs from my uh, income as an MHA to my town. So it won't be uh, uh, any kind of an encumbersome on the people of my town. And here we are. So uh, what happens with that? Do you do you step down as a councillor or take a leave of absence or how does that work? No, any councillor, any municipal councillor in the province that uh, is fortunate enough to be elected as, a, as an MHA has to resign their seat. And then the uh, town is encumbered with a by-election process to fill that seat for the duration of the, of the term of that council seat. So uh, what prompted you to go from um, civil service on a a town council to wanting to represent the entire district? Well, I've always been a person that uh, speaks, talks, listens, and has my ears open. And when the people contacted me, I sat down and I uh, called a few mentors of mine and had that discussion and decided that I would do it. Um, A lot of people ask me as I started hitting the doors, and it's a fair question, why are you calling yourself an independent progressive conservative? Well, I need to describe myself to the electorate as best as I can in as few words as I can so I don't lose their attention for sure. But I've always had the um, the goals and the values that I've had, and after 30 years associated with uh, the political process uh, in the province in a background uh, capacity, I decided I would step up. Those goals that I hold dear and core values that I hold dear are promoting and defending the people, uh, looking after them and their property concerns and their best interest with as much energy as I can. Uh, Also standing up for diversity and inclusion. We are at a crossroads in our district, in our province, in our country, in the world, with looking after the rights and freedoms for everybody. And unless um, unless we stand up for each other and we stand up for those less, unfor- or less fortunate, and also we stand up for our senior citizens, um, they eventually will, those, those impositions on those people will eventually hit home with someone you know or yourself. I also have been uh, very fiscally prudent and responsible in any of my roles with any organizations that I've had. Um, And I've also made sure that any decisions requiring the public purse is fully communicated and feedback is gotten from the people that are going to be affected. Um, I'm a very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for now? I'm probably very socially responsible in that I've spent my entire life helping other people. Because my formative years in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips, uh, where I was born, were very trying. And the community, uh, the organizations in the community, neighbors, all helped each other and never saw anybody hurt. And that, that really in, in, uh, engraved it into me, and I've been doing that for my entire life. Is it tougher, though, um, um, having an election campaign without the formal backing of a party? It's a very big challenge, and uh, it's it's something that um, under the old colonialist British system of democracy, um, you know, uh, someone who wants to step up and do their best for the people that are not uh, financially backed by uh, one of the major parties— um, is at an immediate disadvantage and can only promote themselves and 
uh, believe in the people that they will believe in him or her. This is not to say anything about negatively about any of the candidates in this election. Um, the the candidates just just think how lucky the people of our district are to have such a slate of people to choose from and a slate of people that want to help. Um, you know, in particular, I love Kim. Um, Kim Churchill, the NDP candidate, have lots of respect for her, supported her in her fight for her son, and admire her immensely. Fred has been a uh, a common name in households in Newfoundland and especially in our town because it, his family came here and, and set up there. He's uh, he's very reputable. The uh, PC candidate, Tina Neary, has uh, come to our province and uh, become a, a part of the community and part of a council that... Uh, that is doing very good things. I know when we got elected, one of the things I'm very proud of, when we got elected in 2017 to the term of 2021, we lowered taxes four consecutive years for our municipalities by sharpening our pencil, and most important, by listening to the people. If you don't listen to the people, you cannot lead. And I'm a, I'm a seriously um, committed to listening to the people. The challenges are large. They're not going to see as many signs saying, uh, consider Daryl Harding. Uh, they're not going to see as many mail-outs. Um, so all I can do is utilize social media and get out and bang on the doors. And uh, some people say, yeah, it's a bit confusing. You're independent PC uh, uh, progressive conservative, and there's a uh, Newfoundland Labrador progressive conservative. And that's perfectly fair statement but what i do at every door that i knock on every phone call that i take and in my posts I identify that no i'm not the progressive conservative party of newfoundland and labrador uh, i give them the information of the the uh, the candidate for that party and the link if i can if they have you know computer or whatever uh, and i do it the same and i'm sure they do the same thing as well so one and in on the ballot um, myself and Elections Newfoundland uh, agreed. Well, actually, it's a rule, and I understand the rule. I hope to change the rule at some point. But the identifier on the ballot will just be my name. I'm not allowed to say independent, progressive, conservative candidate. It'll just be Daryl Jane Harding and nothing to the right. Uh, so there'll be a stipulation there, and people will know and, and be able to identify when they go into the ballot uh, box, the ballot booth. Um, the... The big thing, Daryl, um, we're running quickly out of time, but I will ask you this question: oh, sure. If successful, would you join the PCs? No, that's a very good question I get as well. Whatever I do, if the people entrust me, uh, whatever I do, will be the decision of the people. If if that opportunity presents itself, I will have open meetings in the three areas of the district, and if necessary, I'll, I'll I will actually go ahead and uh, distribute a plebiscite. And the people of the district will tell Daryl Harding what to do. I'm not going to be the candidate who tells the district what I'm going to do. Just for a quick moment, there's about six uh, points that I quickly okay, could make. But Daryl, maybe we'll have to do that on another occasion because I'm well past a break. Uh, and I have point. only a few minutes left before I have to go to another break. So uh, we'll have to leave it there, but uh, we welcome you to uh, give us a call uh, before the uh, election is, um, uh, before the people go to the polls and uh, give some of those points. Really appreciate your time.
Okay, thank you, Linda. I appreciate it as well, and I will call in and uh, have please have people go to my Facebook page. All right, thank <laughs> and, you, Daryl. Right, thank okay. you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Uh, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. And we're back. Uh, Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who's off for the next couple of days. Well, Francis Drover is the president of the Newfoundland West SPCA. Hello, Francis. Yes, good morning. How are you this morning? I'm just fine, thank you. Thank you for uh, making time for us. Yeah, no trouble. We're having a very busy morning. So tell us what's on the go. Well, I'm sure that a lot of your listeners have uh, heard the story that on September the 30th, our SPCA, the Bay of Islands and our West SPCA, was informed that there was a hoarding situation within the community. And on the 1st of October, we ended up with 30, in excess of 30 animals overnight. That uh, was 26 cats. We had four bunnies and uh, several gerbils and small, small animals. And um, even though we had a new shelter that we moved into a year ago, which is full to overflowing with a major waiting list. We had nowhere to put these 30 animals. And uh, the city made space for us in the Lions Rec Center in a, in a cargo bay, which was not really conducive to looking after all these animals, but we managed for, I guess, about a couple of weeks until we could find a realtor in the area as that uh, would provide space for us and uh, we set up there and we've been there ever since and now it's four months down the road and we're still full to overflowing with double capacity. So have you been able to find homes for any of these uh, animals uh, rescued from this situation? Well, some of them have, um, a lot of these animals have major issues. They came out of a horrendous situation and uh, we, they had to be all vetted. And in fact, it's only been the last couple of weeks that we don't have animals from this situation that are on medication and what have you. And a lot of them had to have a lot of procedures done. Uh, Unfortunately, we lost three of the cats. Uh, Three of the bunnies were rehomed to Central, as well as the small animals, the gerbils and that. But we still have um, 20, 21, I guess, or 22 in our care. Uh, in the what we're calling now our satellite uh, shelter. So we've had uh, major expenses with fundraising uh, ongoing constantly to try and pay for the extra expenses, especially the veter- veterinary bills. So is there any kind of a, um, assistance that can be provided by other SPCAs? Can you farm any of these animals out? Well, all the other SPCAs in the province are full to overflowing as well. This is the problem, and it's the same right across the country. You know, we all have we all have waiting lists and what have you. So, at the present time, though, uh, we we do have several of these cats have gone into foster, and they may be part what we call permanent foster because some of these cats are relatively old, um, but. Uh, still have a long lifeline left, like in terms of maybe five or seven years left of, of a good quality home, if we can find one for them. And uh, right now, I think we have probably about 10 of them would be ready to be adopted out. Uh, the other, the remaining ones still are under veterinary care, and uh, we have probably 10 left that need major 
major dental work. So that's uh, that's the focus we're on now to try and raise enough money to get this done and, and get them ready that they can go to a good home, healthy, and look forward to the life that they have left. So anyone who wants to support you either by uh, adopting any one of these animals or fostering or uh, providing a donation if they don't have space in their own home but want to help, uh, how can they do so? Well, we have uh, anybody can donate to us. They can go in on our our website or our Facebook page and if they want to give a cash donation, uh, it's nosspca at gmail.com. We also, mid-December, did put up a GoFundMe, especially for these animals as well. And uh, we're hoping to raise $20,000. Right now, our our vet bill, since we took these animals, is in excess of $30,000, of which we have raised about twenty. And uh, so going forward, we still need more to try and complete so that these uh, animals go into their new homes to be perfectly healthy and live a good quality life. A $30,000 vet bill. Yeah. Wow. So has we that already, already has have those services already been provided and the vets are yes. still waiting on their oh, payment yes. or how does that work? Correct. Uh, well, we have already raised in excess of $20,000 that we paid on our vet bill and the services have all been provided. Uh, I mean, there were major things. These <clears throat> these uh, animals came out of a horrendous situation. They were all basically sick, and uh, there was a lot of uh, issues, a lot of medication. Some of them had to be spayed and neutered. Some of them had other issues that had to be really attended to. And, yeah, it's uh, it's not a pretty picture by any means when you look at the, the, whole, the whole scene, you know? Francis, I just received an email, and we're well overdue for the news now, so I'll have to mm-hmm. let you go uh, yeah. soon. But um, uh, we received an email from a listener who says uh, they sent an e-transfer donation to the West Coast SPCA yesterday. It has not been accepted. Do they have anyone monitoring their emails for donations? Yes, all the time, and we have an automatic deposit. So I'm just wondering where they did send it, because I actually monitor it. So I see everything that comes in. Um, and... Uh, so nospca at gmail.com. So um, I'm not sure how they would have sent it. If they sent it as an e-transfer, we should have it. All so right. Um, as, if you yeah. send me the name, I can contact them. Um, I can try to do that uh, through Dave, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, he'll, uh, he'll uh, contact you off air and, and give you the contact. Yeah, okay, perfect, all right, and I'll contact super. them. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity, Linda. Francis, all the best. Let us know how you make out. I will. All right. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, well overdue for news. I'm so sorry about that. Brian Medor, uh, up to you. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. So uh, we're back, Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off for the next few days. Um, uh, so um, the Minister of Health, uh, Tom Osborne, will be joined by uh, Dr. Greg Brown, Senior Medical Director with Eastern Urban Zone of the Newfoundland Labrador Health Services for a, a news conference today with reporters, including VOCM's Richard Duggan at 11.30 to answer questions about this uh, major announcement yesterday, this uh, new ambulatory care hub that's going to be set up in the old Costco building 
out on Stavanger Drive in the east end of St. John's. Um, much speculation over the last few years about what was going to go into that building. And uh, this uh, announcement uh, came as a surprise to many people. A 20-year lease for a total of uh, $42 million to NL Health Alliance to um, uh, operate this uh, new ambulatory care hub. So uh, many questions about uh, how that's going to work, uh, you know, overall costs, uh, recruitment, the list goes on and on, including um, who NL Health uh, Alliance is and uh, who who makes it up, uh, who is part of it, I should say. Uh, So uh, we'll get more answers on that when we come back um, after uh, the news conference. So uh, we are going to go now to uh, Dave Callahan. Hello, Dave. Good morning, Linda. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Boy, I'm I'm good and enjoying your show this morning as as per normal. I listen in pretty much every morning, and uh, as of most recent, I've been, I guess, watching things unfold in our medical world and healthcare in in Newfoundland. I know very well a, a fair bit about it. I've been a, a patron of the uh, of the system quite a bit as of recent, and. Uh, can only say that I totally appreciate everybody within frontline care involved in it, in our health care in Newfoundland, and it's absolutely second to none. And my main reason for calling this morning has got nothing to do with nurses or doctors or anybody in our hospitals. Once again, it's to basically complain about the foolish, absolutely foolish decisions that are being made on an all-too-regular basis now by our bureaucracy that's running this system. And this morning, as I was listening, which prompted my call, I heard Mr. Eugene Nippert talking to one of the topics that I had seen recently, and I shook my head. And having heard him talk about it, I I figured I, I should bloody well call in and voice my opinion on that. And that, of course, is the basic call or request for proposal that was just put forward for the uh, ambulance. Air. It's basically, it's it's an integration of the ambulance and uh, air and ground and how it's ran in Newfoundland. And basically, the request for proposal goes out to integrate this service, I guess, according to somebody else's plan. It's absolutely ridiculous. They just awarded three separate contracts on this RFP, one to a company from California, another from a company from Maine, and I think probably a Newfoundland company, RFP Solutions, for $35,000 to act as a fairness advisor. Now, what alarms me the most is that we don't have the professionalism nor the accountability within our own bureaucracy system to basically run or to be involved with the running of this System. I mean, it's basically not much different than scheduling and availability. I, I ran a bus company with 100, 100 routes at one point in time, 100 different drivers and 100 different sets of parents that you had to deal with uh, per, per bus and, you know, hundreds of them. And it was not an impossible job. It was one that we'd done and done for years. And I think that here on the island right now, 
considering like the needs of Labrador, coastal Labrador, rural Newfoundland, which is basically not only the users, but the benefactors of this system, if done and done right, for them to go forward and say that we don't have the professionalism within this island, that we have to step outside and spend you know almost six hundred thousand dollars, so that a bureaucrat can what sit down with a pie chart and kind of lead themselves to where this RFP is going to go? Absolutely ridiculous. It's going to lead to another level of, I guess, corporate bureaucracy in the system, in that there would be a big system set up to manage it and all this type of thing, and at a greater cost. This is not going to come in at lower cost. There's no doubt in my mind. But before this RFP even went out, there was no local consultation with the people, the end users and the benefactors of this service, such as Coastal Labrador, all of Labrador, rural Newfoundland. No input into the RFP whatsoever. So you can only expect that whatever did go into the RFP went into the RFP by the hands of somebody who either feels that, A, I'm not capable of dealing with this, uh, I'm not really within my skill set, and if they made the decisions what comes out of the RFP without local consultation and, and, and cooperation, not only from the end users and the, and the benefactors of it, but the people that are providing the service right now. We've seen countless numbers of issues. We're trying to streamline and, I guess, maximize for efficiency this service out of Labrador. And believe me, I know because I know somebody that's directly involved in this service every day, right down to flying the plane. It's not a system that i got to believe. As a matter of fact, it's absolutely embarrassing. And I don't blame one MHA either, by the way. I'll blame every MHA in this province that has any connection or would benefit from our ambulatory service, which to me, like right now out of Gander and Goose Bay, I think they've looked at many of the ways this service should be not only operated but also serviced. You've got great ability to fix planes and store planes and availability to fuels and I'm not complaining with any of that or the way things are ongoing right now. I mean, access to pilots is a challenge for, for every air thing that's going on from passenger travel to air freight. But they've managed it very well for the running of our air ambulance system, and I'm sure that that would be one of the priorities this point leading forward. But I cannot accept the fact that from the Minister of I, I mean, from the Minister of Health back, our Premier, all very involved and knowledgeable about our health system, why would you even allow something like this to go forward and to be decided upon? I mean, it's difficult enough if this was just an Eastern health decision and they made the decision for the rest of Newfoundland and Labrador. They would need to have some input and some cooperative spirit put forward to say, we're going to maximize this. We're going to make this the best that we can. I really don't believe for one minute that somebody from California, like, first of all, they don't even know what type of snow tires to put on an ambulance. They don't have to deal with that. As far as air, air, air ambulances are concerned and the way that they've been operating, uh, well, our model is not going to suit yours from California. And if this company from Maine, Life Flight or whatever, I think it's Life Flight they're called, 
our scenario is also quite different than yours. Maine is not at all like Newfoundland. These decisions shouldn't be made by somebody comparing their scenario to Newfoundland. And this is something that you got to believe. If there's not the professionalism within the Department of Health and within the different groups that are out there that are involved with the decision-making and, and the go-forward for our health care and the, and the delivery of our services within our health care, then by we're in hard shape. Dave, you're raising some very excellent uh, questions and points. Uh, we're overdue for another break, but I really do appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you, Linda. And here's the last little word, and I'm going to pass this out to every MHA in this province, no matter what side of the fence you're on or what color jacket you wear. Start doing your job. Thanks this for your call. This is not call. something we need others to decide for us. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. We're going to take a very short break. If you have any thoughts on that or anything else you've heard here this morning or you want to raise something uh, completely uh, your own concern, by all means do so. Here are the numbers to call. And we're back on VOCM Open Line, sitting in for Patty Daly, uh, Linda Swain here. We're going to go now to uh, Sean Buckingham. Hello, Sean. Hello, Linda. How are you this morning? I'm good. How are you? Fantastic. Uh, I must congratulate the, the quality of your callers. Um, and, their, and their comments. Um, first thing, you know, I sat down and read the, uh, read the paper this morning, and I noticed that uh, there was an implication that uh, if Mr. Hodden uh, was elected, there would be a new medical clinic, a collaborative, one place in St. Philip's uh, Pooch Cove. Uh, tell me that's not so. Okay, <laughs> I mean, how gullible are the politicians? Uh, thinking that the population of the problems are getting. Now, it's quite possible that we've always been that way, uh, all the way back to when Joey got the, uh, you know, new highways for the provinces, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this other thing, of course, uh, over at the Costco building, I mean, that reeks, okay? That, that, is, that is bad. I mean, no, they gotta give, they got to give a news conference. Okay, yeah, of course they got to give a news conference. But what is the Newfoundland Alliance, right? I mean, that's that's a question that you brought up. Is it a private company? Is is it a company with ties to the party? You know, uh, is there going to be an election soon? What guarantee you there's going to be an election soon within the next four months? Guaranteed. Because people want their clinics. They want this. They want that. And the fact that we're suffering in healthcare now and, and the patients are suffering, and, you know, uh, you know, who are you going to vote for? You know, I mean, that guy Harding that was on this morning, uh, I mean, he hit the nail on the head. You know, uh, uh, you know, he, you know, is there an independent conservative, you know? And then when you ask him, is he going to join? Well, of course he's going to join. <laughs> Why wouldn't he join? Okay. He, so he's there either to do that or to split the vote so the, the conservatives can retake the seat that Brad held. So, uh, you know, the other thing is there was a death down at the pen, HMP. Uh, they've ruled it a homicide. This guy called in to one of the news stations and said, I'll be dead next week. Uh, the next week, there was an announcement of his death. Um, and uh, he said the guards were beating him. That was on the news as well. Uh, and we haven't heard anything. They've three independent agencies in charge to look at it. 
Uh, now, I'm not sure if Judge Pamela Goulding will say, oh, we got all, all the guards and heroes, and they're not to blame for this, this time around as well. Uh, when the other guy that was killed out there, uh, his manner of death was homicide, uh, as ruled by the uh, medical examiner. Um, so um, there's a lot of strange things happening in this province. And the politicians, um, the bureaucracy here is terrible. And I've never seen it at its at its worst uh, in terms of patronage, in terms of uh, whatever you want to call it. Okay. It's just, it's terrible. Uh, Sean, you threw a lot of stuff out there. So uh, what you're saying is you want to hear more about this. You're talking about the one that just before Christmas, the, the death at HMP? Yeah, there was one. Just well, what happened was there was a guy in Cornerbrook, and they said he died at Cornerbrook, but later it said that he was moved to St. John's and died down there. So there was two conflicting reports. I guess they didn't want too many people dying at the HMP. So they said he died in Cornerbrook, but he didn't. He ended up dying at the HMP after transfer. So that was like two deaths. I mean, don't forget that uh, uh, that First Nations individual. Um, he died and uh, at the pen, uh, apparently over touching somebody's arm, and uh, the gunner sure how that would translate. And then Judge Pamela Goulding says, "Well, no, 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 I don't want to hear any arguments. They're all here, Russ. Send them home." That's not how that's not how court system works. All right, these guys also have been arrested, gone to bail hearings, and all that stuff. Never happened. All right, uh, this is like what happens in Russia. They either let you go or they take it out of one of the local prisons and shoot you. Okay. So my 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 feeling on the whole thing is that justice uh, in this province is a joke. Okay. You, you take my case, for example, before Judge Adams. Okay. I'm not even going to get into that. Okay. Uh, but when, when I got guys following me around 24-7 for two years, and then the rest understand if uh, I was ever in the company of so-and-so or whatever. And each one of them says, no, I didn't see him in the company of so-and-so. Okay. And next thing you know, the jury comes back and says, guilty. So how, you know, that type of logic escaped me and Randy Piercy and Jean Kelly, who's unfortunately deceased um, at present. Uh, so... Things happen. Things happen, for example, um, in this last thing. Uh, there, there was a guy on my jury who was the best friend of the main investigator in my case, uh, Don Maloney, um, constable. He was a constable for 30 years. He was the guy that tried to frame that guy who killed his mother. I don't know if you recall that. Uh, you're, you're throwing a lot of stuff out there that I, I don't have any familiarity with whatsoever. Yeah, he, yeah but, but anyway, he, he, he didn't do it, okay? Uh, and, and they got the guy that did by using the big man sting operation, okay? But they, they tried to get him. And you know Maloney got? He got a week suspension, no pay. So he was involved in mine, you know, and... What the public should be aware of is that the police have these secret warrants that they can get where they can sneak a peek 
they can go into your house when you're not there and have a quick look around. Sean, you're you throwing a lot of stuff out there that I have no, I, I honestly, I, I can't ask you questions about it. I don't know anything about these things. So, um, and yeah, unfortunately, we're up to the, a, a break now. Um, okay. So we'll about have to leave it there. Yeah, about the politicians, you know, promising a clinic. I mean, that's pretty low, right? That's pretty low. All right, Sean, thank you. All right, thanks, guys. All right, bye-bye. Um, Oops, I cut myself off. I'm sorry about that. Uh, and, um, uh, yeah, again, I, I don't know uh, in some of the cases what he's re- referencing there. Um, so I do apologize. I'm simply not familiar with any of that. Um, we are going to go to a short break. When we come back, we hope to speak with you. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. And we're back on VOCM Open Line. And in case you're just joining the broadcast or you uh, haven't been tuning in um, so far today, um, uh, no update right now, but uh, uh, people are being asked to stay away from the terminal building at St. John's International Airport due to a bomb threat received by the airport this morning. RNC on site and have been for the last little while conducting a uh, investigation to see if there's anything to this um, a particular threat and then to, you know, either give the all clear or deal with it as it should uh, be dealt with. Well, um, passengers are asked to check with their airline on the status of their flight uh, to see if it is proceeding or not or if there is a delay or cancellation. So just to make you aware, we have not heard anything since. Uh, so we assume that it is status quo for the time being that that is that uh, people are still being asked to stay away from the terminal building while that investigation is underway. Uh, we'll keep you up to date on that as the information is made available. We're going to go now to uh, Cecilia. Hi, Cecilia. Hi. How are you? How are you this morning? I'm fine. Good. Uh, I have a pet peeve. All right. With the delivery of flyers. All right. Now, I not I know it's such a trivial thing to some people, but to us seniors that are barred in and looking to get uh, specials at the supermarkets or whatever with the price of food so high today, uh, like not to get them is ludicrous, c- considering that this company is getting paid fairly good money, or they wouldn't be at it, to deliver those flyers. So I take it you're not getting flyers? Is that what you're saying? I am not. And when I get them, I get them for a few days and then they're gone again. And then you phone the telegram, you can never get a hold of them. They leave you on hold so long that you automatically hang up. They choose to ignore you. They don't want to deal with you. And like I said, these flyers, they're important to me. I'm a senior citizen. I'm on a fixed income. So when I get my flyers, I look up the specials at the supermarkets especially. Are your neighbors getting them? No. no. So, so your area is just being overlooked for some reason? For some reason. And you phone them and you get a hold of them. Oh, can you come and pick them up? I shouldn't have to go pick them up, Linda. This is what they're getting paid for by the companies that are, have these flyers out. You can have my flyers if you want. I always get the flyers and I never look at them. 
well, that, that's fine. Maybe you don't need to look at them. That, that's good, too. But I look at them. I look at the supermarket ones all the time. Like, if I'm looking, I'm running short on ropes, or I'm running short on chicken, I'll look and see who got them on special, and then I'll go and I'll stack up on a few of them. Absolutely, and I know a lot of people that do. To me, yeah, no, absolutely, and I know a lot of people who do. I didn't mean to make uh, light of of your circumstance. What I'm saying is, I'm getting flyers all the time. A lot of people getting them too, but I also know a lot of people that are not getting them, and I also know that they have found uh, bags of flyers thrown in uh, uh, garbage bins or what have you. Okay, so you think there's a little something going on with the delivery there? I think, yes, this needs something going on with the delivery, and the customer should be given, and I'm sure the supermarkets and whoever else, the furniture stores, whoever else, that are putting out these flyers are putting them out and paying for them to be delivered. And you're not getting any satisfaction when you ask questions about it? No, none. Well, this one is off or that one is off. Now, I do know that they have a supervisor going around the van. Hey, what's he getting paid for? Obviously, he's not doing his job. Cecilia, I, uh, um, Dave is uh, whispering in my ear. He says he has some information for you to help you get the answers you're looking for. Are you willing to um, go back on hold and talk to Dave about it off air? Sure. All right. I'll put you back on hold. Um, I'm interested to know how many more people that are not getting these flyers that would like to get them. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd like to hear what others have to say. Uh, Appreciate that. Cecilia, I'm going to put you back on hold, and uh, Dave is the next person you're going to speak to. Okay, Linda. Thank you. All righty. There you go, Dave. Uh, We are going to go now to Charlie. You're on the air. Hi, Charlie. Yes. Good morning, Linda. How are you this morning? Oh, doing fine, thank you. I, I, I assume you are too. You, you, you sound good anyway. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'd like to speak about a topic this morning that may raise some hackles. We've been talking a lot about housing, uh, how it's uh, unaffordable and people can't find houses and how young people can't get into the housing market and rents are going up and so on. I've come to the conclusion that the problem with uh, our society would be wealthy people. And going along with wealthy people would be our politicians, who are, as you know, mostly wealthy themselves. Therefore, they, do, they don't want to bring up this, uh, this problem and any, uh, are to solve it with any uh, sweeping measures that I, th- I think should be taken. I'll give you an example. In some places in the States, they're now doing a luxury tax. I've mentioned this before on the year. Homes that are, let's say, over a million or over a half million uh, dollars. And the fund is used then to provide housing that people can afford or to get people in that uh, are homeless and so on. Uh, it seems like in our society, if you have the money and wealth, you can build as large a home as you want and um, this is happening of course all across Canada all across the world for that matter we act as if there's no end to resources lumber minerals and so on imagine what what goes into uh, to just uh, furnishing a home that I'm talking about 
This is unlimited. You've got also wealthy people who are speculating. They buy homes to uh, resell rather than have to keep them for so long. we won't look at that problem. Then you have foreign uh, buyers, wealthy people from away, who buy homes they don't even intend to live in. So if you look at the overall problem, as I said, it's wealthy people and politicians who won't take action on this kind of thing. And it's uh, young people are suffering as well as uh, middle class people and below. If we all if we all got together and understood what was happening, we could force our politicians to. Uh, to do something uh, about this problem, but they count on us being uh, kind of apathetic and ignorant, and uh, that's that's how they get away with it, uh, in my opinion. So what would you suggest uh, to, um, I mean, make it uh, more equitable, maybe, or, uh, I, you know, what what is it you, you're looking for? I'm suggesting, number one, above a certain limit, uh, there'd be a luxury tax if you want to pay all kinds of money for to, to, to build those big homes and use up the planet's resources and Canada's resources. You should pay for it uh, with a luxury tax that would be used in the way I suggested to help uh, build smaller homes for uh, people who can afford uh, these. I would suggest there'd be very strict rules on speculation, buying houses uh, to sell, which drives up prices dramatically. Uh, that's that's just two, and um, it seems like the only party that really subscribes to any of this would be the NDP party. And of course, we don't vote for them. We just keep putting in the same two uh, to to lots of people, the PCs or conservatives and the liberals, and uh, neither one of them really uh, really do much for the middle class or the. Uh, or 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 less well off. So that's too I'm suggesting. To play devil's advocate for a moment, um, would there not be a concern there that by applying um, um, certain taxes, and I don't know, it might be a reasonable tax, it might be a, an extremely punitive tax. I don't know. I'm just throwing these things out there. Um, would that not have a dampening effect? And who does the tax apply to? Does it attack, apply to the developer or the homeowner? It could apply to both, but I would suggest the homeowner would be the uh, the uh, main one, and the, the the money raised would 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 be provided. To, uh, it wouldn't hurt the economy because you, you're you're building more homes, smaller homes for for other people, providing jobs that way. If you look at food prices, if you look at climate change and any of these others, beside housing prices, this is all being driven by, by, by the wealthy, by large corporations and so on. Uh, and there's very little action taken uh, on any of them because, as I said, politicians are basically in, in the pocket of, 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 of people like that because they're, they're, they're mostly wealthy people themselves. But anyway, I'd like to explore this in greater detail at, a, at, a, at another time, but uh, I, I'm throwing it out there for people to at least think about. And uh, maybe maybe sometimes I think there should be a revolution in, in this country because the inequitableness be, between the rich and poor is growing uh, every, every day. And um, we're just left with uh, people to try, trying to make ends meet for two or three jobs and uh, being stressed out and everything else. Uh, it just seems to be in an unequal society, and um, you look at the education programs, they don't address this kind of thing, and, and, and I suspect it's because people who ultimately are in charge of these, drawing up these programs, are part of the problem. 
the wealthy again. But anyway, I won't tie in that one now, but I'm sure there's some tie in there. But anyway. Charlie, appreciate your call this morning. Uh, Have a great day. Can I can I can I go with a couple of more or or after the break? Could, uh, well, uh, yeah, let's let's touch on something else just very quickly. Okay, uh, just uh, a very quick one on uh, destructive and uh, constructive creative things. A lot of the a lot of the, the show is taken up with uh, people having a drug problem or drinking problem and so on. I don't know if you've noticed people with uh, creative distractions. I'll call them. Uh, I would I would say people who are involved in music, woodworking, gardening, writing, uh, poetry, pottery, dancing, you name it, learning how to play a musical instrument. These people would have less of a problem with uh, uh, the, the the destructive side of things when you get into drinking to distract yourself or drugs and so on. And again, I criticize uh, the educational system. If we had people leaving schools with more of these type type of things, they would be less inclined to get into alcohol and drugs, perhaps, and lead a little bit more uh, of a creative and happy life. I suppose, but history tells us that a lot of creative people have have fallen into very uh, yeah. serious uh, addiction and um, you know behavioral problems yeah. caused by all the stresses and strains that come with either performance or or uh, dealing with the creative world. It's it, it, there's stress on on in any sector and and in the arts, it's particularly hard. Yes, the, these would be the genius types in that. I'm, I'm basically talking about the average person who has uh, avocation like uh, woodworking and so on. They get up in the morning and they look forward to uh, doing these things I, I mentioned. So I'm not talking about the creative geniuses and that. Many of them have had the problems that you, you're talking about. But the people I've observed that seem to be uh, the most balanced and happiest in our society are people that have uh, one or more of these uh, outlets that, are, that I was talking about. An outlet, yeah, absolutely. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. And one last thing. Everybody, no, not everybody, just about everybody I play in Scrabble is from the States, and, and, and nine out of ten of them, you know what they're saying? If Trump gets in, do you have a place for us in Canada? That might tell you something. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, yeah, uh, the world is watching that one very closely. Uh, Charlie, thank you very much. Okay, Linda, all the best. All righty. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to speak with you. And we are back on VOCM Open Line. We are going to go now to Gail. You're on the air. Hi, Gail. Hi. How are you? Not too bad. How are you? Good. Good. Beautiful day out there. It is. We're not freezing up with the Gore-Tex, are we? <laughs> no, not uh, not just yet. Not yet, and hopefully we won't. Anyways, I was calling you with regard to the signage of the campaign that's going on here on the Belle Island East District for elections of a new, uh, P- uh, new candidate. Right. Okay. Two years ago, we had someone come here on this island under the directive of the Liberal government to take down all signages because it was a distraction to the people that was driving on the island, which was like small businesses here on the island that have like flower shops here, salons and stuff like that. It was all taken down because of distractions. 
I come home after being gone for a while, and here is this huge liberal sign in the exact same place that the sign was. This one sign was tore down. All right, what sign was that then? The previous sign. The previous sign. I like it's. I can't tell you exactly what they were because they've been torn down now for two years. But it was probably some. It was a personal small business thing kind of thing. I would say. Oh, like a business sign. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I got you. Yes. Yeah, right. And who um, tore that down? Uh, the uh, Department of Transportation or? The Department of Transportation came over and took it down. Under whose direction, we don't know. And I mean, I'm not involved in much around here. But anyways, these signages were taken down. Now we have an election going on. Now we have this great big sign there to elect a liberal candidate that's running for this area. And, and it's way bigger than the one that was there before that. And just across the road from it was another one, is another one which is blown down. And then when you come back down over the hill to go to the boat, there's another great big liberal signage where there was signages there for people to promote their small businesses or whatever they have here on the island. So I'm wondering what and who would give a directive to tear down signs and then under the Liberal government, and then the Liberal government comes over and puts up their signages. They're on the same spots. Yeah, so which is it? What is the sign policy, I guess, is what you want to know? Well, okay, the sign policies are there, but, okay, they tore down everything. There were signages that was told to be taken down on personal property, too. Taken down off personal property? Yeah. Okay. That was that was considered to be uh, uh, destructive to people driving. Yeah, and I know that that's um, been the case in numerous areas uh, during election yeah. campaigns. Some signs will be taken down because uh, they yeah. uh, are a hindrance to uh, sight views and all those kinds of things. So I don't know what the specific uh, situation is in, in that particular case, but it's a it's an interesting question to ask. I really appreciate your time. Okay. And I mean, that's what I was wondering about that. And the guy that just called you before that, he was talking about poor and rich and stuff like that in the society we are living in today. Our children are not raised today to take responsibility for their own actions at young ages. And I'm thinking that's what's creating a lot of these issues. I've lived through a lot of this and I've worked through a lot of it. Children today are not made responsible for what they do and what they carry out in their actions. They sit down at the dinner table, their phones are going. You're driving with them. They don't even know where they're to on the roads. And I think that's a lot of it between CYFS, who I do not want to get started on this subject because I could drag them through the coals, are making people, kids can't do this. Kids can't be that. They can't be responsible for this, right? Teachers are held Ran, at ransom for trying to make people responsible. So where is our society going with our children is another question I would ask. Well, you're asking a big one there, and we'll see what others yeah. have to say about it. I, I really do appreciate your time, Gail. Thank you. Okay, but I'd like to know what the answer is from the Liberal government, too, about this signage. All right. It should be, it should be removed from our roads like everything else had to be removed. And did you call the Department of Transportation about it? But no, because uh, we it, when all these signs just came down, there was some stuff said uh, like we were people did ask questions but got no answers. Now I mean, 
we have our own idea over here as to why it happened, but I mean, it's not a professional one. It's just a personal one, so I'm not going to divulge into that. But if you have a look at your liberal government and trickle down to your regional managers, your district managers and stuff like that, you'll find the answer. All right, Gail, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, we are going to go now to the Minister of Health, Tom Osborne. Hello. Hey, Linda. How are you? Good. I understand you've got a busy morning ahead. <laughs> Which morning is not busy. But, uh, well, indeed. Yes, we do. We do have a uh, an announcement uh, this morning on ambulatory care, uh, a new hub announced. Uh, so I'd like to tell you a little bit about that. Yeah, please do, because uh, as I indicated off the top of the show this morning, I saw the release come down yesterday, and it, it kind of raises more questions than it, it answers off the top. But, uh, yeah, tell us exactly what the, the concept is here. What is it all about? Perfect. Yeah, no, I can uh, run through some of the, the details. If you still have questions, happy to try and answer those. But the the new uh, hub will certainly improve access uh, for individuals who require services where overnight hospitalization is not required and those services would be outpatient physiotherapy for example uh, medicine clinics or surgery clinics uh, general x-ray ultrasound um, as well as some others so the the um, uh, the new clinic, uh, you know, some of the benefits uh, for both the space and, and the acute care sites in the metro region, um, we will see a decrease in vehicular traffic, making it easier to park uh, at the uh, acute care sites, uh, a reduction in foot traffic, um, you know, for day surgeries or, or uh, outpatient services, um, an expansion um, of the inpatient services that are available at the acute care sites because we'll have more space to do that such as emergency uh, surgery cardiology um, there will be an increase in the overall clinic spaces available and a reduction in wait times because it's another um, location for individuals to avail of services so you know this will be positive uh, for everybody for healthcare professionals for uh, individuals who rely on our healthcare system. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, uh, help me out with this because I'm trying to understand it. So, uh, if you go to the health sciences, for instance, for a follow up with your surgeon who has done work on your toe or something, we'll say, um, normally you have to go to a clinic at the health sciences and you're sitting in a large waiting area and then you get called and blah, blah, blah. So, that gets eliminated. You're going to this clinic instead? Yep. So many of the outpatient or, you know, surgeries even that are not requiring an overnight stay will be relocated to this new ambulatory hub. Um, you know, this is in addition to the two uh, urgent care centers that uh, there's currently an RFP out uh, in the city for uh, two sites for urgent care centers. Um, and, you know, that will also reduce this will will, uh, you know, reduce um, the uh, emergency department burden because we can expand emergency departments. The, the urgent care centers will also reduce the uh, the wait times at emergency departments because individuals who, um, you know, we will obviously need to do some 
um, public relations and promotion of when you should go to an urgent care centre versus the emergency uh, department and when in doubt always go to the emergency department but there are uh, services that individuals go in for that are non-emergent but they are urgent they require same day or next day treatment those are the types of things that will be carried out at the new urgent care centers uh, but this ambulatory care will be outpatient services uh, not emergency but outpatient services uh, clinics, x-rays, ultrasounds, and so on, uh, where we can uh, expand the services, uh, acute care services at the hospital by uh, providing additional space uh, and reduce the, the foot and vehicle traffic at the acute care centres, making it easier for individuals to navigate. Minister Osborne, we're uh, past uh, due for the news, but are you willing to hang on for a few minutes? I know you have this news conference at 1130 because I have some questions about cost, duplication of services, uh, recruitment and retention, those kinds of things. Are you willing to hang in there for a few minutes? Yeah, absolutely. All right. We'll put you back on hold and uh, we'll go to VOCM's Brian Medor and we'll hear more from the minister right after this. And we're back. We were speaking with uh, Health Minister Tom Osborne before the break. He joins us again now about this uh, new ambulatory care hub that's going to be established in the old Costco building. And and what is the cost of this? The contract is valued at $4.1 million annually for a 20-year lease. That equates to, what, $82 million? So uh, what's that all about? So that's the cost of uh, having the space and, you know, everything in, in involved with um, uh, providing the space, the lease, uh, and the upkeep, the utilities, whatever is involved with providing that space uh, over a 20-year period. So this is a long-term commitment uh, to the region. Uh, this is uh, part of government's plan to reimagine how we deliver health care, uh, realign services in facilities to match uh, not only current needs, but future needs, and enhance care based on changing demographics. Does that contract include uh, the necessary renovations or work there and, and equipment, staffing? It doesn't include uh, staffing. Staffing are public servants. They will be um, provincial health authority employees, uh, but it would include you know, a turnkey operation uh, so staff can go in and operate the facility. And in terms of staffing, uh, we already know that uh, continued challenges remain when it comes to recruitment and uh, retention, and we're not the only ones facing that, uh, as you've indicated numerous times, and others have as well. Uh, you know, these are challenges that are faced right across the country, so that means there's increased competition. So how do you staff a facility like this? So we are um, seeing um, recruitment and retention initiatives and efforts uh, paying dividends. Um, you're absolutely correct. Retention and, and recruitment of uh, healthcare professionals is no different than tradespeople or engineers or you know many other occupations. Uh, there's a shortage globally uh, that includes healthcare professionals. So our efforts uh, have been stepped up. Uh, we have a recruitment office here at the department, a recruitment office in the health authority. Uh, we put an RFP out. We have, uh, I believe it's five international recruitment agencies who are now working for the province. Um, they are about to start, but uh, those are international recruitment agencies that 
you know, are have been assigned and will be working for the province to look globally at um, healthcare professionals. But even prior to that, based on the initiatives, the incentives we've put in place, the extra staffing in the recruitment office, we have been recruiting and uh, we have been seeing imp- you know improvements in in our recruitment efforts uh, in the province. And you know some of the telltale signs of that uh, for sure. You know, in addition uh, to the the virtual care options, but our Category B sites, uh, there are less diversions today than there were this time last year. Um, in fact, you know, uh, significantly less diversion uh, this year than there were this time last year. There are still um, shortages of healthcare professionals, no different than in Nova Scotia or Ontario or Alberta, uh, but we are starting to fill the gap. So. You know, we have to continue to uh, put the infrastructure in place that will attract um, healthcare professionals to the province. One of the challenges that has been identified by the Provincial Health Authority is when we're offering an old or, um, you know, a facility that is in constant need of repair, equipment that is in constant need of repair, um, it makes it more challenging to recruit healthcare professionals. They want to work in a modern facility with modern equipment. Um, you know, so one of the uh, focuses on recruitment is obviously the human resource aspect. The other focus is on ensuring that we have the facilities and the equipment to attract and retain healthcare professionals. So this $82 million, is that part of the uh, recent increase we saw in federal health transfers? Uh, Well, certainly the federal transfers will help pay for things like this. Um, You know, this is improving access uh, to uh, health and and healthcare services is part of the uh, requirement under the federal funding. So, you know, I had a meeting uh, face-to-face with the federal minister yesterday. Um, the, the federal funding and the increase in federal funding was part of that discussion. Uh, but yes, uh, you know, to put it in a nutshell, the short answer is yes. So it sounds like a uh, public-private partnership. Uh, who is Newfoundland and Labrador Health Alliance? Uh, no, so they are simply leasing the space, um, no different than, you know, when we lease space on Monday Pond Road for, um, you know, health services or, or walk-in clinics, um, or no different than leasing space in other, you know, the, there are many, many areas in the province where government leases space. The public servants uh, that will be operating in these facilities and the equipment in these facilities will be uh, provincial health authority. And um, any timelines as of yet? Uh, we do anticipate that this will be open uh, in 2025, um, early 2025. So, you know, we're anticipating, um, you know, by spring of 25. As soon as that? Yep. So yep. work must so, be already underway, is it? Um, I don't, I, I can't speak for the proponent what they are doing or what they've done in the space, uh, you know, whether they've started fitting it up and, and uh, with, you know, many potential operations in mind maybe, but, uh, you know, the the building is existing. Uh, I guess it's the renovations that uh, and, and the layout that they would have to do in order to... Uh, have it 
um, set up as, as a, an ambulatory uh, care site. I have been inundated with calls uh, in the last, uh, well, since this release came out, uh, wondering who um, owns or who is part of the Newfoundland and Labrador Health Alliance and who owns that building now. So I have absolutely no idea, Linda. Um, I, I don't know who the, uh, other than the name, um, you know, one of the things that I can say in my 28 years in the legislature is I have never been involved in the writing of an RFP. I leave that to the professionals and, and the advisors who uh, write them, and I I don't sit down and evaluate them. Uh, I know the name. Um, I'm sure we can find out who is behind the name uh, of the Newfoundland Health Alliance, but, um, you know, I don't know who owns that building. Who owns the building? Yeah, that was my question because uh, so it's it's privately owned right now or is it owned by the government and you're leasing it to a company? I, I'm trying to understand it. Sorry. <laughs> no. So the, the tender was for uh, somebody to provide the space to government. Um, part of the benefit of that is we get in there at this time next year or, or close to it. We get in next spring. Um, as opposed to building a site and it taking six or seven years to get in. Um, you know, so it was, you know, the private market uh, had many buildings that uh, may be suitable for uh, these types of things. It's no different than the urgent care sites that will be going to the, pri- you know, the, the space will be uh, private market, the operations will be public service. Um you know, but it gets us in next spring. If we were to build a building like that, um, you know, we would be five or six years before we'd get in, and we need those services today. So, yeah, so you're leasing the space from the yeah, private market. Right. Yeah, gotcha. Um, and hopefully spring of 2025. Uh, yes, that's correct. So that is, um, you know, as part of the RFP, um, the requirement to get in, uh, in a timely fashion, and, and we, you know, we are certainly aiming for the spring of 2025. And then the education campaign begins, by the sounds of it. Well, yes. So, the, I mean, in terms of ambulatory care, we will certainly provide uh, public relations and, and an education campaign to advise people, um, you know, what services are available there. Certainly, anybody who has an appointment uh, for outpatient services will be identified, you know, the the location will be identified. And as we get the urgent care uh, centers open, um, you know, we need to uh, educate the general public on, you know, the services that are available at urgent care versus emergency as well. And do you expect to hire more people or will you be uh, moving existing staff around? So some of the staffing, for sure, a large component of the staffing uh, for uh, ambulatory care is already in place. Uh, you know, we obviously, uh, ambulatory care, like other areas, uh, you know, we need to continue to recruit uh, for some. Uh, but, you know, many of, the, many of the specialties in the province, we don't have a, a, uh, a critical shortage uh, like we have with some disciplines, uh, nurses or family physicians, for example. Um, you know, so we're in, in much better shape when it comes to specialties and, and those types of services uh, in terms of the positions that are filled. And any um, cost yet or set for, you know, the, the required uh, equipment and things? Uh, I can get you that. I, I don't know. Some of the equipment... 
um, will obviously move from, um, you know, the acute care sites into ambulatory care, but we will obviously need some additional equipment as well. Uh, but, you know, that's an operational issue for the Provincial Health Authority, but certainly happy to get you that information. I appreciate it, Tom Osborne. Thank you very much. You're off now to explain this all over again. Exactly. My <laughs> pleasure indeed. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, your thoughts on that? You're certainly welcome to give us a call. When we come back after the break, we're going to speak with the Minister of Digital Government and Service NL, Sarah Studley, coming up right after this. And we're back. We're going now to the uh, Minister of Digital Government and Service NL, Sarah Studley. Hello. Good morning, Linda. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you. Thanks for having me on your show. Yes, no problem. I understand that uh, Patty Daly had been um, wanting to ask you a few questions, and in his absence, it's going to be me. Um, One of them is to get an update on uh, the implementation of speed cams in the province. Where are we with that now? Absolutely. So um, I'm very pleased to to give your listeners an update. So I think as most people know, we did a pilot over the summer, a three-month pilot, uh, with the town of Paradise and the city of Mount Pearl. And I just want to thank both of those municipalities. They did most of the heavy lifting for the for the pilot. Um, and so we had two cameras, one in each uh, municipality, and the cameras moved to different locations. Um, and I think the pilot was really helpful in, in giving us a clear understanding of, uh, you know, there, people are speeding. Um, you know, the technology works. Uh, it, it, we kind of got some of the, a lot of the kinks out of the system. Um, so in terms of the pilot and, and the number of people, uh, we had three different locations in each municipality. Um, and I'll give you some numbers. So we only started, uh, I guess we only counted people. The camera would only count a driver um, if, or, sorry, a camera would only count a car if it was going 11 kilometers an hour over the speed limit. Um, and so if we look at the, you know, knowing we only had two cameras for the three months, um, we, had, oh, we had almost 94,000 vehicles speeding through those, uh, those areas going over 11 kilometers an hour over the speed limit. Uh, that's over 500 speeders per camera per day on average over the three-month pilot. Um, you know, so personally, I was quite, you know, shocked at how many people are actually speeding uh, in our communities. Um, and when you look at those numbers, I have a kind of a more uh, detailed breakdown, but 25% of those were speeding over 20 kilometers an hour over the speed limit. Um, so I think it was a blaring indication that speeding is a big problem in, in some of our communities. I know anecdotally people, um, you know, think that and we hear that from communities uh, that uh, road safety is a concern Um, and I know that these locations were chosen for various reasons you know near a school zone or uh, areas where you know municipalities suspected people uh, drove um, at high speeds and so this uh, from my perspective the pilot was really helpful in uh, I guess demonstrating the problem, working out some of the kinks with the technology. Uh, I know the municipalities sent out notices, so we didn't send notices out to all of those people um, because we were limited by, you know, the the staff time. We had staff in the city of Mount Pearl and the town of Paradise actually sending out warning letters, um, so we were limited by those resources. And so now uh, our team are really focused on coming up with a solution that. 
uh, is as automated as possible because we don't, you know, I don't think it's feasible that we have someone in an office printing off and mailing all of those, uh, you know, notices or or tickets or whatever you may be, whatever you call it. Um, and the other thing that we are really focused on is coming up with a model that uh, does not put pressure on our justice system. Um, so when you think about, you know, if we had sent out 94,000 tickets, which, you know, we didn't send out that many warning letters, but that's how many people sped, uh, that's how many vehicles sped over 11 kilometers an hour over the speed limit. Right. That uh, would really bog down the system. Absolutely. So at the moment, we have multiple government departments um, focused on coming up with a solution that does not clog up the justice system, but allows us to use this technology to uh, improve road safety and ideally reduce the number of people speeding on our roadways. So um, I can't really, you know, say how that's going. You know, it's my top priority and I'm, you know, bugging the teams all the time. Um, I do believe that we will have speed cameras on provincial roads in 2024, so we're not years away. But I think, you know, later this year, uh, we just have some things we're working on at the moment. But I think I just want to thank the Town of Paradise and, and uh, the City of Mount Pearl. Um, and I know a lot of municipalities have reached out looking to participate. Uh, and so give us another few months. We're working on a solution, I think, that um, will help give municipalities uh, the option of controlling speeds in their communities uh, if they choose to. Right, because I imagine this uh, requires a certain strategy. How many cameras? uh, Where exactly? You know, where is the need? Where are the greatest concerns? Because you're not just going to scatter them left, right, and center. They have to be, I would imagine, strategically placed. Absolutely. Um, And so... From the provincial government, you know, we have provincial roads and provincial highways, and so we know now that we, there are dangerous roadways where people are speeding, where from a government perspective, we want to reduce speeds on those roadways. Um, and municipalities also have reached out, and they know where those types of dangerous areas are. Um, I guess legally, you know, they're fully legal, and, uh, you know, a municipality today could be, uh, they could have speed cameras up today. Um, I guess we're trying, I'm, I'm trying to be helpful to the situation, so I'm, I'm trying to uh, what we're working on is a, a model where a uh, municipality, if they choose, uh, would be able to uh, leverage speed cameras in areas of their community if they if they chose to, and it also would allow the provincial government to put uh, some cameras on our roads. Um, so I just need a few more months, and uh, I'm, I'm very hopeful that uh, in 2024 we'll have speed cameras on at least provincial roads, and then we'll uh, be working with municipalities uh, where they would like to see speed cameras, if if any, on their roadways. And so what kind of strategy will be in place for provincial roads? Because many are, uh, you know, there's quite a distance involved, and uh, many are where a lot of the speeding takes place because you tend to get a a few straightaways on the go. I'm thinking in terms of um, uh, some very high-traffic ones like the Peacekeeper's Way and um, the Veterans Memorial. So, I mean, if you put one or two speed cams on those long stretches of road people are going to know where those speed cams are they're going to slow down around the speed cam and then they're going to give her again well you know and i guess one thing i think it's important to understand we're not trying to trick people you know there will be clear signage that there are cameras okay we our goal here is not to give someone a, a ticket or a fine our goal is to slow speeding down we want to save lives reduce accidents make our roadway safer so that is the primary focus um we are looking at where on different roadways we could put speed cameras to have the most impact. 
I absolutely appreciate that, uh, you know, we, we can't fix the problem everywhere, but we're going to try and get started and, and reduce speeds in, in dangerous, on, on dangerous roadways today because, you know, we are seeing way too many accidents. People are driving way too fast, as we're seeing, as we just, you know, saw definitively in the pilot we ran over the summer. We are uh, up to a, a newscast right now, uh, Sarah Studley, but I was wondering if you'd be willing to uh, stay with us through the news because I'd like to ask you a little bit about uh, uh, measures being put in place to address uh, high-cost lenders in Newfoundland and Labrador and to talk a little bit about um, addressing some uh, serious concerns when it comes to uh, Landlord Tenants uh, and the Landlord Tenants Act. Are you willing to stay with us? I can certainly stay on. Thank you. All right, great. Well, we'll join you uh, right after the news, which is coming up now with VOCM's Brian Medore, Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who's off for the next couple of days. Uh, stay tuned. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. And before the news, of course, we were speaking with the Minister of Digital Government and Service NL, Sarah Studley, who provided us with a, a bit of an update on the speed cam issue. But there's another one that's come to the fore in recent days regarding a, a significant gap. But we, uh, we trust and we hope that uh, people who are renting are behaving themselves and the people who rent to them are also behaving themselves. But there are occasions when there are bad tenants and there are bad landlords. So um, apparently, a gap currently exists where there is no responsibility in launching uh, court proceedings for those who violate the Landlord Tenancies Act. It's something that came to light as the result of a recent CBC Investigates report. So, uh, Sarah Studley, how is the department addressing that? Thanks, Linda. And, uh, you know, I think it's an excellent question. And, and advocates in the community um, have really been asking us about, you know, how fines are given. Um, I know that individuals can go through the court system. We know uh, and we've seen that that has not happened. Uh, so we've taken a new look at this, um, you know, working with a lot of you know lawyers and all that stuff. We're taking a, a in, in reflecting and reviewing the legislation, um, I can commit that our department now will be taking a lead where warranted um, on the process to go through in terms of resulting in a fine um, under section, section 51 of the Residential Tenancies Act. So we have a lot to work through between now and, you know, bringing um, something forward. And I can't even, uh, I guess, give you an idea of what that would look like. But um, we, we do accept now that that is our responsibility. And uh, in addition to, you know, anyone can take it through the court process, but uh, as uh, the regulator um, and the Department of uh, Digital Government Service and L, um, we will be taking on that role uh, where warranted um, to help improve compliance with the legislation and regulations. How is it that that gap managed to exist? It, was it simply an oversight, or had things changed over the years? Um, I mean, that, that's a great question. We have, you know, in this department, we have over 100 pieces of legislation and regulation, right? And, and I would say most of those have fines, and I would say a lot of them have never, you know, fines never been uh, warranted. 
Because we have a, a judicial, a quasi-judicial independent process where, you know, res, uh, landlords and tenants can go through to get a resolution, uh, that a dispute resolution process, and that works really well. And we're, um, we've spent a lot of time and effort uh, making that more efficient. So we reorganized our department. Uh, we added additional staff there to try and reduce the time to get a hearing. Um, so that's really been our focus, I guess, since I've been in the department in that area, is really making that process, you know, get a decision faster so that tenants and landlords can resolve issues more efficiently. We offer, uh, we encourage for, uh, mediation, for example. Um, so that's been the focus. And uh, now I guess we're, that is kind of working uh, and we're shifting now. And I, you know, I know Sherwin Slade has brought this to our attention, uh, and I just want to thank him for working with us collaboratively. Uh, he's a, a big advocate locally. And so we do accept now that uh, this has been a gap, um, and we are going to be taking on that role. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to update your listeners in the future in terms of how that's going and what that looks like. Uh, the uh, I know that um, the government has indicated in the past that it uh, is uh, somewhat reluctant to uh, put uh, rent caps in place, but the NDP now saying, uh, Jim Din, uh, in a release issued yesterday, indicating that he had uh, personally been speaking with a landlord who told him, you know what, I upped the rate not because of my expenses going up, but because there's great demand out there and I was going to make a bit of money, extra money. Uh, so says Jim Din. So um, uh, how do you address that? So I have spent a lot of time talking to people, researching how we can use different levers at our disposal to help reduce rents overall. And so when we look across Canada at provinces who do have caps on rental increases, so some provinces have might have 2%, 2%, 2%, 5%, or they, they might have a, an amount that a landlord is allowed to increase the rent. Well, what we see in those provinces is that overall – the rent increase is much higher than what we see in Newfoundland and Labrador. So we do not have a, a limit. Um, but in the provinces where they do have a limit, uh, I believe Nova Scotia, you know, is 2 2 2 5%. That's what landlords are allowed to increase the rent. Uh, our rental increases have, have gone up much less than those provinces. So it, it's difficult, you know, I'm hesitant to, to add those types of mechanisms when we see that they're not working in keeping rents lower. And in those provinces, they also have mechanisms where landlords can apply for much greater rent increases, and they're almost always awarded in other provinces. And, you know, we'd need a whole other team to administer that. Um, when our rent increases here on average are lower than, than other provinces where they have those types of regulatory regimes in place, um, and we have a supply problem. We do not have enough low-income, social, um, medium. You know, we have a shortage at all the levels of the housing sphere. What I really don't want to do is scare off landlords either. Um, we don't want to push landlords out. We don't want to discourage new landlords from entering the market. Uh, so if I really thought that adding some of these would help people keep their rents down on average, I would be championing them. Um, it's a difficult situation. The data across Canada does not show that that is effective in keeping rents down. 
And finally, the department issued a release this week um, indicating that uh, it is uh, taking new measures to uh, address uh, high-cost lenders in the province. They must be registered now. What will that mean um, in terms of uh, protecting uh, consumers and, uh, I guess, regulating uh, these high-cost lenders? Thank you. Yes. So um, as of June 1st, we will be regulating high-cost credit lenders. So those are people, uh, companies who might offer high-interest loans or might, you know, rent to lease furniture or high-interest credit card uh, leases, uh, sorry, high-interest car leases, for example. And when we're talking about high-interest, we're talking about between 27% and 35% annual interest rates. So the federal government have recently lowered their criminal interest rate to 35%. Um, and so now a high cost credit would be 27% and up the interest rate. Um, and so we're adding things so that it's really clear to consumers what it is that they're purchasing. Um, you know, I, do, I you know, obviously I'd recommend if someone has any other options that they not go down one of these roads. But we know that, that people are choosing to purchase these products. So uh, we want to make it really clear um, Companies will have to put right up front what the total cost of borrowing is. Uh, They have to be really clear about all the rules, the disclosures, all the fees. Uh, We're allowing a cooling off period of four business days. So if you you get one of these high interest products and you change your mind in four days, you can kind of pay it back without penalty or fees. Um, Rules around, you know, what hours of the day they can they can only call you between 8 a.m. and 9 p.m. You know, they can't harass you. They can't call your friends or your employer without your permission. Um, And so they also can't incent you with a free gift. They can't say we'll give you a hundred dollar gift card if you get this very high interest loan or or get this very high interest uh, couch lease, for example. Um, So we're trying to put some rules around it. Uh, We're the fifth province in Canada to do that. And I just want to thank my colleague, uh, MHA Lucy Stoyles, because she first brought this to our attention. She had constituents who um, had these high-interest credit products. And when we took a look at it, um, we realized that we were, you know, we weren't staying ahead of, of where some of the other provinces were in regulating this. And so I'm very pleased to say, you know, we, we already brought the act to the House of Assembly. Um, and now the regulations will be in effect June 1st. And we've contacted all the companies um, and so they should be aware and uh, making changes to their businesses to ensure that they comply by June 1st. Right. So these are companies that, let's say, uh, will tell you we can put a uh, big screen TV in your house for just such and such exactly. a week or something like that. It makes it sound like it's affordable, but that's over a lengthy period of time with compound interest and added fees and all those kinds of things. Absolutely, yes. We want to make sure it's really clear up front, and and they have a legal responsibility to make sure that it's clear up front exactly what you're buying, how much it's going to cost, and uh, if if they don't, you know, if someone makes a complaint and then we find that that's not the case, then we can pull their license so they're no longer able to sell those high-cost credit products in our marketplace. Do we have many of those kinds of operations here? Uh, I think there are more than you'd think. Um, I don't have the total number of businesses, uh, but if you, you know, if you go to any of their um, financial statements, you can get a sense of how much of their business operates in Newfoundland and Labrador, um, and it is more than you'd think. Interesting. Uh, Sarah Studley, thanks for your time this morning. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Linda. Have a great day. Alrighty. Bye-bye.
Uh, and uh, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to speak with Rob Strong and about where oil and gas prices could be going uh, because of uh, current global events uh, coming up right after this. And we're back, Linda Swain, in for Patty Daly, who's off for the next few days. Um, we're going to go now to uh, local oil and gas advocate Rob Strong. And uh, Rob, very curious as to this escalating situation in the Red Sea off Yemen. Uh, what's going on there? Wow, Linda, I got your note earlier, so I had a chance to do a little bit of a uh, little bit of homework on it. Uh, you know, if you if you look at the Red Sea, really, it's it's an extension of the Suez Canal. And when people realize that the, the amount of marine traffic going through the Suez Canal, I mean, some people are saying it's up to 20% of all world traffic goes through the Suez Canal. And, of course, a large part of that is oil or gas, particularly when you look at, you know, what, what is on the Red Sea. I mean, Saudi is there, Yemen is there, and just around the corner you've got the Arabian Gulf or the Persian Gulf with Kuwait and the Emirates and Iran and Oman. So a fair, a fair uh, not a fair, probably 20% of the whole world's oil production comes from that area. So if you can't, uh, you know, you're, you're, if you're going to run a tanker uh, through the Suez Canal, and let's, let's take a, a two million barrel tanker, which is a standard VLCC, uh, and you're going to have two million barrels at 80 bucks a barrel, that's $160 million in one load, and you're going to go through the, the Gulf of, just past Yemen, where the, is it the uh, Houthis? Is that the correct pronunciation? The Houthis, yeah. Now the U.S. and uh, U.K. are now engaged with them uh, in some uh, strikes and air fire and all the rest well, of it. It's, so. it's, it's getting worse than that because... Uh, uh, Yemen, uh, there's, there's riots in the streets, or at least protests in the streets now against the U.S. and the U.K., but they're also supported by 20 other countries, including Canada, by the way, because we all have things. So I, 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 I'm, I'm concerned. I, I, you know, the oil industry likes stability, and something like this is certainly not giving any, any, any oil companies uh, any sense of stability. The, the price has gone up 4%, I think. I looked at it earlier this morning, it was 3%, and I just looked at it 10 minutes ago, it's 4%. And I don't think it's going to stop. I don't think it's going to... Uh, it's gonna, I think it's going to go up some more because, as I say, the instability. Uh, now, unfortunately, you know, things like this affect us in Newfoundland. Uh, here we have the Ciro is about to leave location to go on dry dock for a year, or not a year, six months or whatever it is. And uh, therefore, we won't be producing the 50 or 60,000 barrels of oil a day that White Rose was doing, that Sea Rose was doing. And of course, the higher the price of oil, the more royalties we get. So uh, we're losing out there as well. But, but on a global perspective, Linda, yeah, it's got to be concerning when, when, when this amount of activity is going to be hampered. I mean, people, tankers are now going to go down around the Cape of Good Hope, down the bottom of South Africa, and that's an extra 10-day sailing. And oil companies as well, no different than any other companies, like to, to do what we call just-in-time. They like to keep the, keep the amount of time that they have the crude ready to refine to a minimum. They don't want to keep it in storage because it's costing money. So they, they'd like oil to arrive one day and start getting it processed the next day. 
that's a slight exaggeration, but the principles there. So uh, I, I, I anticipate the oil prices will go up. How much? Who knows? It depends upon the uh, continued activity in in the Red Sea and and, and by the. The, you know, the, the the activity that's going on in Yemen and the, the drones and missiles and so on that they're sending from shore. And this isn't happening in a vacuum, of course. Uh, the Houthis apparently backed by Iran. And, um, and then we've got this uh, horrific situation unfolding in Israel-Gaza. Um, so, I mean, it's um, it has the potential uh, to be long-lasting and um, far-reaching. Yes, it does, and it may be, you know, it may offset the, the, the as, you, as, as we all know, fossil fuels are, are on a downward, downward decline vis-a-vis their, their, their use in, in, in the world, but it's going to, going to be very slow, so uh, uh, I think it's going to keep the prices up, up fairly high for a while until this thing sorts itself out, if it ever does. I mean, there's been trouble in the Middle East over oil for years and years and years, even since, you know, Aramco, the original developer of the Saudi resources, has always faced opposition and and, 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 and rebels and that sort of stuff. So it, it's, uh, yeah, it, 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 it's a bit disheartening or discerning that, that, that uh, you and I as consumers are going to continue to pay high prices for oil. How is the industry uh, responding to the clean fuel regulations? Uh, you know, everybody's scratching their head and trying to adjust and trying to decide uh, uh, how, how, how are we going to replace these fossil fuels. Uh, you know, people talk about wind, and, and particularly here in Newfoundland. I mean, when you consider the, the, the replacement of fossil fuels, uh, for, for production of, of energy for for the hydrogen ammonia plant, uh, that, that's that, that's a that's a big factor. Uh, people are trying to figure out, and of course, if there's a change of government in Ottawa, the Conservatives have a different attitude towards fossil fuel consumption or fossil fuel production than than the Trudeau. So there, there's a lot of balls bouncing in the air to try to try to get an understanding of how how this is going to affect us all. And like you say, uh, you know, the the business world likes stability. <laughs> well, this is certainly the oil market is not very stable today with, with roughly 20% of, I'm guessing, 20% of, of the... The other interesting thing, by the way, Linda, is the United States has now become the largest exporter, largest exporter of oil, and has been exporting oil as far as from the United States to Asia. But with with the uncertainty going on and the and the and the tanker prices, tanker prices. Here, here's a quote. If I put my glasses on so I can see it, bear with me. Here's a quote saying, "The cost to charter a super tanker to ship up to two million barrels of crude from the United States to Asia surged this week to about ten million dollars." up from about $8 million just last week. So the market for U.S. oil is going to be much more expensive, particularly in to, to, to Asia. And again, if all things are reasonably stable in the Middle East, you're going to see the Middle Eastern countries exporting more and more to Asia. So that gives U.S. Po- a potential surplus of oil. But as I say, they're, they're, they're exporting, I think, about 14 million barrels of oil a day. So it's... Uh, yeah, it's a very unstable world we live in, not just in, in, in oil and gas, but obviously in geopolitical terms as well.
And we forget that one of the uh, the bigger players on the uh, oil and gas scene, of course, is Russia, which has been taken out of the mix for the last uh, little while for obvious reasons. So, um, you know, no telling where or how that whole scenario is going to unfold. Um, we wish for the we hope for the best. But so, uh, you know, will Russia ever be a, a significant global player when it comes to oil and gas again? Well, who knows? Because, of course, the, the, the countries that were dependent upon Russian oil and in and, and particular gas, Germany is a great example, uh, are going to adapt or adopt in, uh, new, new sources of gas, new sources of energy. And even when things settle down, will they be able to will they be willing to take back? Uh, the Russian output, as I say, particularly of gas, the, the, the Nord Stream pipeline that, you know, I forget how many millions of cubic feet of gas it used to export. And, and of course, that's one of the big pushes for our hydrogen ammonia business is to, is to replace Russia gas into, into, into the German market. For, for energy production, it's it's so yeah it's 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 you know I'm glad you threw that one into the mix as well. Yeah, it's a yeah you know, I mean so like you say so many balls in the air it's uh, really hard to keep on top of it but that's what you do uh, so we appreciate you uh, giving us a call this morning with a uh, an update of sorts. I appreciate you asking and. Uh, I try my best, but it's a very difficult position to try to figure out what the heck is going on. Uh, well, I mean, it's always difficult to figure out global markets, but uh, we're in a really topsy-turvy time, uh, uh, obviously. Anyway, you have a good weekend. You as well. Okay, see you, Linda. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's uh, local oil and gas uh, analyst uh, Rob Strong with some of his, uh, uh, I guess, uh, thoughts on what's going on in the world today. That's it for us for today. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, VOCM News Talk will be hosted by the lovely and uh, super capable Brian Callahan. So stay tuned for that this afternoon. I'll be back on VOCM Open Line uh, this coming Monday. Uh, because Patty is taking uh, a few days of R&R. So uh, do join us then. I look forward to your conversations. Great show today. Thanks, everyone, for your contributions. And uh, we'll be back then. VOCM's Brian Medore is next with uh, VOCM's News at Noon. Have a great day and a great weekend.